This is Paul Adamson, and welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of my online magazine, Encompass. I chat informally with personalities from a wide variety of backgrounds on a wide variety of subjects. If you like this podcast, you can go to the magazine's website, encompass-europe.com, or any of the main platforms for free access to all the podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My guest is Charles Grad, the director of the Centre for European Reform, and I should point out that I'm a member of the advisory board of the CER. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Charles. Hi, Paul. Nice to be with you. We're going to talk about geopolitics 2021 and get your crystal ball out and give us some insights, please, about what you expect the year ahead to, to, to show us in terms of the broad geopolitical world. Uh, we're going to try and cover as much of the world as possible in the next half hour or so, but obviously we can't cover everything. But I need, I cannot resist the temptation, but to start with, with Brexit, but not on the usual trade aspect side that, that have been covered by many other commentators, including many of your CR colleagues, but on the, the foreign policy side, and why, in your opinion, did, uh, did the UK government, if one can believe what is being reported, did not want foreign policy broadly to be part of the, the, the Brexit talks? Well, I, I regret that, Paul. I think that um, post-Brexit, um, one of the important things is that Britain stays fairly well closely aligned with its EU partners in dealing with global challenges and global issues. We want, we want very much Britain to be part of the West in the broadly defined, meaning the group of countries that stands up for liberal democracy and the rule of law against authoritarian and di- countries and dictatorships. And the British government decided not to have any structural links at all to the EU on foreign policy. Um, the, it's, it's, its reason being, well, we don't have any structural link to the US on foreign policy and we can still work with the US, which in a way is fair enough, but I regret that. And I think that uh, my own view is um, Britain is giving up a chance to influence the EU, but we still, and, and to go and learn what's going on, we still will need to learn what's happening in EU councils after Brexit. We're going to be pressing our face against the glass, looking inside the room with much less much less good sources and much worse source of information than we have today when we turn up or we, we have until recently turned up at meetings. So I think, I think having some sort of structural links to between the UK and the UN foreign policy so that we can learn what's going on in the room so that we can try and influence, uh, influence the EU countries to go along with the British point of view in certain respects, much more difficult than in the past as we're no longer a member state, but have influence where, where it matters. And so that we can concert our efforts and work out how we can, coordinate our efforts in various foreign policy dossiers. I think that I regret that. And I think, but I think, you know, the good news is uh, there's plenty of time to change that. I mean, I think one thing we've learned from the Brexit deal when you read it in detail is almost nothing settled in the long run. It's a very thin Brexit deal on trade, security cooperation, foreign and defence policy. Uh, It's very thin, but there's no reason why future governments, Labour or Conservative, won't come, come into power and say, well, actually, We'd like to have a less friction at the borders on customs than there is today. Maybe we can do a deal with the EU and a little bit more alignment for a little bit more, a little bit less friction at the border on foreign policy. Why not have some sort of structural link, a sort of coordinating committee, so that we can talk on a regular basis to the EU about foreign policy or defence challenges? There's no reason why future governments can't build on the deal we have. That, that is a basic framework. But I think, I think my own view, Paul, is that for the next 50 years, we're going to be in non-stop negotiation with the EU. If you talk to Swiss diplomats, they'll tell you that they've been in non-stop negotiations since the 1970s. And 
why would the British not, not also bother to be permanently negotiating? Yeah, but let me interrupt by saying that, you know, there's a sneaking suspicion in some member states and the European External Action Service that the, the UK has a kind of dastardly plan to, to sort of not pick off member states, but to deal bilaterally with key member states, obviously France and Germany in the E3 format, for example, dealing on, on Iran issues. And that might be a, a kind of uh, behaviour model for the UK government in foreign policy terms going forward. Do you, do you have any sympathy with that suspicion? Well, I think it's, 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 they're, it's they're correct. That is, that is what some people in the British government want to do. But it's not a dastardly plan. It's just a, a rather, in my view, foolish enterprise, foolish undertaking to, to try and, because the EU is a bad thing in itself with Europe, an extreme Brexiteer in the government, and there are plenty of them in the government. Because they use a bad thing, you don't want to talk to it. You want to talk to the, the serious member states, the big boys around the table, like the French and the Germans and the Dutch and the Swedes and one or two others. Um, so they, they will try and do that, and they'll, but they'll soon find out that you can't influence the EU very well just through talking to the big member states alone. You need to talk to the little member states too, have a lot of clout in it. You need to talk to the institutions as well, which have quite a lot of clout in what happens. So if the British think that they can learn what's going on uh, just through talking to the big boys and influence what's going on through talking to the big boys, I think they're making a mistake and they're going to have to do what uh, the Americans and the Chinese have learned they have to do, which is talk to everybody and take the institution seriously. Right. This phrase, global Britain, which has been bandied about a lot, ever since the referendum, actually, in 2016, tends to be talked about in terms of, of trade deals across the world, but less so maybe in kind of broader foreign policy terms. And as you know, this year, the UK has, has a presidency of the G7 and also the kind of co in effect, presidency of COP26 later this year on climate change. Are those kind of uh, fora and those positions of authority uh, important in terms of the, the UK's post-Brexit foreign policy strategy? Yes, I, do. I think Global Britain is a, is a slick phrase. That I don't think a huge amount of work's been done on working out what it means in practice. I mean, it could, you know, Britain, Britain's foreign policy could evolve in a number of different directions, Paul. Um, I mean, it may be, as I think some of the more extreme Brexiteers would hope, that we team up with the Anglosphere, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant countries who are with us in the Five Eyes Intelligence Corporation um, coordination uh, institutions, which is the Americans, the Australians, the New Zealanders and the Canadians. It could be we, we very much focus on them. It could be, uh, on the other hand, that we actually, which I would personally prefer, that we actually remain a very uh, sort of semi-detached member of the European Union, not a member of the EU, but certainly quite closely aligned on foreign policy. And indeed we are today much more closely aligned with the EU on issues like Iran, climate change and the Middle East peace process than, um, than we are with the Americans. That we, that we, we're not part of the EU, but we are kind of close partner and friend of the EU. It could be that. Or it could be that we, we, we reach out to other middle-sized democracies around the world and kind of specialise in creating a club of middle-sized democracies like, like Australia and Canada, but also Japan, South Korea, maybe Chile, uh, maybe, maybe other, other countries in Latin America, possibly South Africa. It could be that we, we reach out to other middle-sized democracies and try and expand our influence through, through, through working with them. Or we may do some combination of all three of those, which is perhaps the most likely thing. But I, I, think, I think the key thing for me is global Britain is, you know, we can all, whether we're Brexiteers or Remainers, say global Britain is a good idea in outward-looking Britain. But are we really going to be out in outward-looking Britain if we're leaving the Erasmus Student Exchange Scheme, for example? Mm. If we're creating uh, obstacles, if we do create obstacles to foreigners to come and work in the UK, 
if we if we don't encourage uh, if we make a lot of difficulties for trade with the EU. So I think global Britain requires a certain attitude and frame of mind and mentality in in the UK government and the Tory Party today is 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 is, is frankly it's divided rather like the Republican Party in America between the, the nativist nationalists who are not so really focused on a global Britain well they say they are but in fact they, their main objective is keeping immigration down and doing what's best for them uh, in, in terms of English nationalism and the more internationalist minded Tories including many Brexiteers who are internationalist minded Tories who are genuine when they talk about a global Britain who do believe in free trade agreements with lots of countries and being Britain being a kind of open open hub to the best the best brains of all the, all the world coming to to reside and work in the UK but I think the a lot depends on the way the Tory party develops. We don't know whether it's going to become a nativist nationalist party or a more open globalist party, and it could go either way. Right. Well, of course, the UK doesn't have a monopoly on kind of that phrases. So turning to the European Union, the van der Leyen Commission is just over a year old now. And when the president, Ursula van der Leyen, came into office, she talked about uh, a geopolitical commission. And on the back of that, you've heard a lot in the past year, even before, but certainly in the past year, of the concepts such as strategic autonomy, even digital sovereignty. Again, are these slightly, I uh, wouldn't say meaningless phrases, but kind of catchphrases more than substantive policy directions? I think strategic autonomy, Paul, promises to be a bit more than a meaningless phrase. In global Britain, you can say is a meaningless phrase. Strategic autonomy, I, I take a bit more seriously. Um, I think what's it's being driven by two things. It is, of course, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, who's talking most about strategic autonomy. But um, I think it's driven partly by... Uh, Fears of, of, of fears and worries about the Trumpist attitudes of the United States, uh, in particular um, uh, Donald Trump's first term in office, which led us many people in Europe to worry that America could pull out of Europe, pull back from Europe, abandon NATO, and become totally focused on what was going on in the United States. And so that made people like President Macron think actually Europe needs to be able to look after itself. It needs to be able to do what it wants, and not just in terms of defence policy, but also in terms of energy dependence in not being dependent on one country for supplying its energy, on in terms of technology, having its own technology companies in terms of data and so on. And, there's, and then it's not just Trump, it's also China driving this. Mm. Because um, you know, the Europeans have watched China bullying Australia in the over the last year, cutting off trade with Australia to punish Australia for calling for a, an inquiry into the, into the COVID-19 epidemic in rather critical terms. Uh, and I think you, you're, Europeans are becoming very worried about China, and they're worried that you know, China may be able to bully us in Europe into not criticising them because we're so dependent on them, them for trade. So I think strategic autonomy is about Europe not being able to be bullied by anybody and be able to do what it wants and say what it wants and think what it wants and act in the way it wants. Now, interestingly, it wasn't very much a French idea. It's a very strange French concept. Yeah. A lot of people in Germany are going along with it. Not Anna Great Karrenbauer, the defence minister who doesn't like it, but other Germans seem to be rather favourable to it. There is some pushback from some Nordic, Baltic countries and the Poles who fear this is all about ganging up on America and being anti-American and that, could, that we could actually hasten the American disengagement from Europe if we talk about too much autonomy. But I, I think the EU's moving in this direction. What Macron needs to do is find ways of reassuring the Poles in particular and other Nordic and Baltic countries as well that it's not an anti-American concept. I think it has some mileage in it, strategic autonomy. 
Well, let's maybe pass that down a bit briefly to the, the US aspect, as you hinted just now, and also the China aspect. On, on, on the US side, is it, is it fair to say that uh, during the Trump, uh, Trump administration, there was uh, more and more signs of formally re- reluctant or recalcitrant member states coming warming to the Macron concept of uh, strategic autonomy? But now, of course, with the uh, imminent arrival in the White House of uh, Joe Biden, Will there be grounds for some or a justification for some of these member states to, to, to say, well, the pressing need is no longer there because we have such a, a multilateral, uh, traditional, if you like, uh, Democrat as president? I think you may, you may be right, Paul, that there would be less an immediate need for pushing ahead with strategic autonomy because Biden is a, a relatively good guy who believes in multilateralism and the liberal-based international order. But I think it wiser heads will say, actually, Biden's arrival, though highly desirable, doesn't mean you can uh, stop worrying about uh, being strategically autonomous. Because certainly, well, we've all learned that Trumpism, tr- Donald Trump may be leaving office as we speak, but uh, Trumpism is not dead. He could come back or there could be another Republican president with very similar views to Donald Trump in a few years' time. So I think, I think the, the, US, the US is, we shouldn't see Trump as a one-off aberrations, one-off blip in the transatlantic relationship. The US is becoming more and more isolationist in many respects, and its voters are increasingly unsympathetic to the idea they have to spend lots of money mm. to defend Europeans who aren't prepared to spend money on their own. And what Donald Trump said about, said about defense budgets was not, was not wrong. I mean, he said that if Europeans want the Americans to defend them, why can't they spend a little bit more on defense? He was absolutely right to say that. Right. Some of them did raise their defense budget when he did say that. Yeah, and of course, Obama was saying that as well before Trump, maybe slightly more elegant language, but he was saying that as well, of course, when he was president. It's not necessarily a new yes. thing from, from Trump. But still on the US uh, dimension, and uh, bring back in the UK briefly as well, do you think there's a, a, a possibility, even a danger, that both the UK and, and, the, and the EU, maybe from different directions, have uh, un- unrealistic expectations of what a, a new US administration will bring uh, because in many respects, you can say, as you just said now on defense spending, the, that's a, a U.S. line no matter who's in the White House. And uh, in certain aspects, it's clear to say the EU and the U.K., uh, certainly the EU, are not on the same page as, as the U.S. in many important uh, arenas. Yes, I don't think it's going to be plain sailing at all with the Biden administration. I mean, it'll just be a lot less difficult than it was with Trump. I think, I think intellectually, Biden starts off in rather a similar position to many European leaders in that he believes in a rules-based liberal international order, but, but he's also the American president. And American presidents uh, tend only to go along with multilateralism when it suits them. America is a large superpower that is not naturally willing to be constrained by boring, complicated international organizations. I remember a seminar in 1999, one of the, one of the first ones that we organized after the CR was set up. We had senior people from Clinton's administration coming over to London for the seminar the European policymakers and officials at the seminar were complaining then about American unilateralism in 1999. So uh, it's, it's, it's not just Donald Trump is unilateralist. America is, is itself inherently unilateralist because it's a superpower and superpowers don't like to be constrained. And I do think one particularly difficult area, Paul, that for the Europeans uh, will face in dealing with America is China. Because obviously yeah. uh, we have similar problems with China uh, we're both worried about uh, the behaviour of Chinese companies stealing intellectual property, using unfair state aid to gain a, an advantage over our own companies. Some similar, we both have worries about human rights in Hong Kong and Xinjiang. But there's a fundamental difference in our approach to China. Um, 
which is that the Europeans are basically not as tough as the Americans because we take an economic view of China. We, we have to have a close economic relationship. It's so important for our economy. Well, America, being a superpower, takes a geostrategic view of China as well as an economic view. And the American political classes have become much tougher vis-a-vis -vis China in the last few years than they were before. So have the Europeans, but from a, a, a lower base. So my, my worry is that it will be quite difficult for the Europeans and Americans to work together on China, partly because the Europeans, as well as being left tough, they're just slower to move because it takes so long to get the Europeans to take decisions on these issues. Yeah. And partly because our, our fundamental attitudes are very different. The Americans seem to object to China being a, a, a rival to them and a super a, a growing power per se. They object to Chinese power and they don't like it. Yeah. Well, Europeans are not really bothered by Chinese power. They're bothered by Chinese behavior on human rights or the way their businesses act or whatever. So I think there's a, it's going to be quite difficult to line up with the Americans on China. And we've seen in the last few days, of course, a little bit of tension already over the disinvestment treaty that the Europeans drew up at the end of 2020, uh, pushed ahead by Angela Merkel. Uh, to create uh, easier rules for investors of China, for Chinese investors in Europe and vice versa. And uh, Jake Sullivan, who's the incoming national security advisor of Biden, has tweeted that he, he's ashamed that the Europeans didn't consult us first before they went ahead with this treaty. So I think there are tensions already emerging. But why do you think the Europeans did push ahead with this uh, comprehensive agreement on investment, CAI, to give it its full name? As you say, member states, some member states and the institutions are worried by, uh, concerned about China's behavior especially with its immediate neighbours, but nonetheless kind of uh, business interests prevailed. Is that the backdrop? I think the backdrop, Paul, is the Europeans are very, very confused about how to deal with China, particularly the Germans, who are the central country in European policy on China, because almost half all Europe's exports to China are from Germany. And I think, uh, to be fair to them, it's not easy. On the one hand, economically, German, Germany, and particularly German industry, needs the Chinese markets, its car industry, its machine tools industry, and so on. On the other hand, everybody, including the Germans, are getting much more concerned about what they perceive as Chinese misbehavior, it's stealing intellectual property, abusing human rights, and so on. So on the one hand, Germany and driving the whole EU wants to have a close economic relationship and wants this investment treaty. On the other hand, they're very concerned about Chinese behavior, and they don't quite know how to square those, those two circles together. But at the moment, the EU is not being tough in terms of, you know, not doing treaties with China and not hasn't actually punished China because of what it's done in Hong Kong at all. I mean, uh, tiny measures, but no significant measures. So I think I think the EU is is not in the same place as the United States, which is much keener to be tougher on China because of its perceived misbehaviour. Beyond the economic and commercial underpinning of this new uh, comprehensive agreement on investment between the EU and China, uh, do you think there's still a feeling in some member states, starting with Germany, obviously, that this is also a good way to keep China close to close to, to the West, uh, and that even though it may not be in the immediate future, the, it's a way to keep channels of communication open in the hope that uh, China will change its behaviour in other areas, especially in the area, obviously, of human rights. I think there are probably some people in Germany who take that view, Paul. There's this German phrase, uh, Wandel Dirk Handel, you change people through trade. Right. I'm a little bit, uh, my, my own view is, I think they need to get 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 real, it's not really happening. And they, they thought that about Russia for a long time. For many years, uh, the Germans in particular went on thinking Russia will get nicer and behave better if only we can trade with it and draw it closer to us. So I think even in Germany now, on Russia, people have understood that just didn't work and you actually do need to be tougher and more realistic in the way you handle Russia. I think Germany's going through a similar learning curve with China, but trading with China has not made China more respectful of human rights, more 
uh, more globalist and many more more favourable to international liberal the international liberal order as the Germans hoped it would. But it's harder for the Germans to really face that reality because their economy is so dependent on trade with China. I think China is Germany's biggest trading partner. You've said that the there's a clear difference of view between the US and EU and its dealings with China uh, because you say the US just objects to the fact that the China's becoming a, a, a rival superpower. Uh, but during the, the Trump administration, as you know, and, and it, there are signs, and you quoted Jake Sullivan just now, uh, with, the, with the incoming Democrat administration, that they're not going to change their view. And they've been, they've been, there's some resentment, would you agree, in EU circles that the, the, of, that the European feel they're being bullied by the US. So you, sh- you, ha- you have no choice but to side with us against China. Uh, and there needs to be a, maybe a reset or maybe on the US side, about how they, how they deal with EU when it comes to the, the both of them dealing with China. I think, I think that's right. I think, I think and I'm, but the good news is I think the, um, the Biden people, from what they say, are quite willing to talk to the Europeans about China and other issues in a way that Trump was not. The Europeans tried to work with Trump on China and Trump just didn't want to do it. He wasn't interested. He said, why should we talk to you guys about China? You have different perspectives, different views. I think Biden's starting point is let's talk to the Europeans about how we handle China. But as I said, it may be quite difficult uh, to get them lined up in the same place because the Europeans just don't have a slightly different approach to China. It may be easier on other problems like Russia or Turkey or Iran. I think that there, there may be easier to work together with, on, between the Biden people and the European leaders. But China is going to be difficult. Right. Well, Tony, maybe just the US briefly on its own. Is it, how do you think the, the first year or so, given that... Uh, time is of the essence, I suppose, if you're Joe Biden, there'll be uh, the need to focus for obvious reasons on, on, the, on, on domestic politics, frankly, in the economy, given the situation they're in, uh, rather than uh, st- giving expression to all this newfound or re- reinvigorated rather multilateralism that we're, we on the, in Europe are very excited about. With the best will in the world, Biden, despite his, his, his very strong credentials in that area, simply won't have the, the time or the energy or the, even the justification to get too involved in the international side of his brief, but concentrate on domestic uh, affairs? Um, well, let, let's see. I think, obviously, from Biden's point of view, the news from Georgia that is good. He will more or less have the Senate uh, able to support him on, on quite a lot of issues. Uh, I, but I still think domestic, the domestic policy agenda will be very difficult for Joe Biden uh, because... He doesn't control the Supreme Court, which is strongly conservative now, six to three. Um, it'll still be difficult for him to control the Senate because he just needs one dissident Democrat to, uh, to, to block his, 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 his bill to get legislation through the Senate. And I think that Republicans are you know, still very strong in many states, many, in many areas. So it'll be quite hard for him to pursue a, a radical domestic, domestic agenda. Biden is himself a foreign policy expert. He's very interested in the world. Some of his, he's got a very strong foreign policy team with um, people like Jake, 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 Jake Sullivan and, and Tony Blinken in, in key positions. So I think, and he will, he will, he will see the damage to America's reputation that, that Trump has done. I think he will focus on the international issues because he's interested in them, and and because for all his the importance of the domestic agenda, it may be quite hard for him to, to get a lot through Congress. So for example, his so-called New Green Deal that he was talking about in the election campaign. I don't see that getting through Congress at all easily. Right. Well, to finish off then, Charles, um, let's try and bring some of this together. Um, 
Do you think, we're talking about this incoming uh, Biden administration, that in the first few days of a post-Brexit UK and the EU without the UK as a full member, obviously, do you think beyond the convening of seminars by organizations like, like your own, uh, and, and will be a, an appetite for creating maybe certainly initially informal structures to, to, uh, to generate and foster and nurture the conversation, dialogue, uh, consensus building between the, between the US EU and UK? I would hope so, but I, do, I, I don't know for a fact that will happen, Paul, but I think what is really being talked about, and it's quite interesting, is creating new structures for democracies. Right. Structures that don't have China around the table. The fact that China has been a member until recently of the UN Human Rights Council and is going to be rejoining very soon again, it really discredits bodies like the UN Human Rights Council. The fact that China and Russia and their friends are so influential in the United Nations does, for many people, uh, therefore reduce their utility or their value. And uh, so I think we're going to see a lot of talk about new bodies for democracies. There is the British government talks about the D10, which is the G7, who have our democracies, plus South Korea, Australia and India being added in as, as democracies, or in India's case, quasi-democracies, I would say. Um, then there's the CPTPP, the, the trade club of Pacific nations that Trump withdrew from, which Biden may join and the British may join, um, uh, which he doesn't even have China as part of it. And there's also talk of new organisations for internet governance and data rules, uh, data, data privacy governance, which is certainly talk of setting up new bodies that don't have China as part of them. This is very understandable. And I think there is a need for democracies to get their act together and to concert their efforts in, given that so much of the world is not democratic these days. I'm a little bit wary of this. I think if the Americans and the British push this too far, there'll be some pushback from the EU side. So on the EU side, there's a strong view that if you want to discuss climate change challenges or pandemics or indeed trade issues, you've just got to have the Chinese around the table. Maybe they behave in a horrible way sometimes, they're not democracies. But you can't have a seat for the Chinese. So I'm, I'm a little bit sceptical that there'll be a lot of a lot of uh, progress on create, trying to create bodies that exclude China in, in global governance. I think we... We have to put up with the bodies we have, but however, however inefficient and boring they sometimes are. All right. Well, much to look out for in 2021. We have to leave it there. Charles Grant, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Paul.